0: From across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you.
1: Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society.
2: Well, the first thing to say is um, thank you for sharing your Valentine's Day (laughs) evening with me. I'm very touched. I hope you'll still be loving me at the end of the, uh, the next uh, roughly an hour we're going to spend together. Um, I, I really want to do perhaps two or three things this evening. Uh, I really appreciate the, the chance to come and talk here uh, to the Royal Aeronautical Society, so my, my sort of professional body, a chance to talk a bit about maybe three things. Um, why I think international cooperation is so important, specifically in space exploration, Um, to give you a glimpse of what's being planned for the future. So not everything is real yet, not everything is definite, uh, but the ideas that we have. But also then the third thing is maybe leave you with a question, which is what's going to be the UK's role in all of this? So uniquely among, I think, space activities, uh, exploration is driven by an amazing combination of curiosity, and opportunity curiosity to go out into the unknown with our humans and robotic explorers and the opportunity to bring back new knowledge and technology and capabilities and inspiration for back here on earth and so the things we can only do by sending out our human and robotic explorers now um, i feel duty-bound to do a little bit of corporate presentation on behalf of the european space agency The thing about ESA is we are an intergovernmental organisation governed by a convention and you'll confine that convention in UK law uh, with a a crest on the top of it. So there's no intention as far as I know to withdraw that from UK law so the UK will continue to be a member of the European Space Agency uh, as long as things go well uh, despite anything of some word called Brexit which I'll try not to mention too much this evening. Um, but we're there to do peaceful research and technology and the application of space, and space exploration is part of what we do. Uh, ESA has um, 50 years of experience and history now, 22 member states, but also a cooperating state, Slovenia, on its way. And we also cooperate, a long-standing cooperation with Canada. Eight sites and facilities, including one in the UK, at Harwell and Oxford, uh, a budget uh, of uh, shy, just a bit shy of 6 billion euros a year. I'll use euros. I prefer a hard currency. Um, and over 80 satellites designed, tested, and operated uh, in, in flight. And unlike um, many space agencies, if you compare us, say, with NASA, we have nothing like the budget of NASA, but the breadth of what we do is in some many ways greater. So it's the classical outward-looking space science activities, which are... Driven by fundamental discovery about our universe. The exploration program, I'll say something about in a minute, but also the downwards looking Earth observation. Not only this pure science, understanding our changing planet from from space, but also using space data in everyday life. Uh, You've used uh, European uh, satellites today, if you look to the weather forecast, thanks to uh, UMETSAT, but satellites developed by the European Space Agency. If you have Sky TV, you're using uh, a telecom satellite built in, uh, in, to some extent, in, in the UK, using technology supported by the European Space Agency. To get into orbit, we have a complete launcher program. We have the facility to operate these spacecraft, not just at Earth, but way out in deep space, and doing amazing stuff in developing technology for the next generation. So within that, exploration is part of what we do. It's about 12 13% of the, all, all of the activities of ESA. So on that basis, you can do the calculation. It's about 550 million, 600 million euros a year at the moment. So uh, what are we doing? One kind of snapshot for one year, 2018, some of the things that were going on, um, we celebrated 10 years of continuous operation of the Columbus Laboratory aboard the International Space Station, our foothold in space. Uh, and going to the International Space Station, our European astronaut with a German passport, Alexander Gerst, made his second mission, his six month mission back to the space station, launched. In the middle of the year, came back just before Christmas, just in time for Christmas. I went to get him. Uh, and uh, the top left and the bottom right-hand pictures showing, showing the start and the end of his mission. He was, became only the second European to take command of the International Space Station, uh, the first one was a Belgian, Frank de who runs the Astronaut Centre these days. Um, but we were also doing research in the low-gravity environment with our zero-G plane. And we got an, uh, a campaign coming, several campaigns coming up this year doing science in the low-gravity environment. We also delivered a massive piece of space hardware to the Kennedy Space Centre, the first European service module for the Orion Deep Space Vehicle. Uh, We're working on rovers and robotics, developing technologies and experience for our astronauts of how to do science on another planet. That's what the top right is. We we are training our astronauts to be geologists, for example. And then flashing away at the bottom of the picture is an instrument that was put onto the space station last year, developed by Denmark, led by uh, Danish scientists, to look down at the Earth and study some of the least understood phenomena – things that were only discovered in the past 30 years, sprites and elves, high transient luminous events which burst out above uh, thunderstorms but in the stratosphere and upper atmosphere, uh, very poorly understood the physics and the, and the relationship and their impact on weather. So we're doing a lot of science, technology and innovation and I'm pushing forward. But let me start with what I mean by exploration. I hope I don't, with an audience here in the UK, Need to describe the historical significance of exploration, the voyages of explorers like Columbus, uh, and so on. Um, I like to, I'm, uh, Bristol is my adopted city, and I like to show these pictures of uh, John Cabot, that famous British explorer who came from uh, Venice, Um, a a perfect example of being uh, a British entrepreneurship. He was funded to go out and find a route to the to the Chinese world and along the way he landed in Newfoundland in uh, 1497. But I like this picture because the loop, the ellipse of his mission, is not just about going somewhere, it's about coming back. And Really, that's what makes exploration in some ways different from the purely space science activities where generally we go places or we look out. Exploration is eventually about coming back again. So, uh, the ultimate voyage of exploration, of course, of Apollo, and without da- da- the pinnacle of achievement in, in that area, 1969 to 1972, so long ago now that the millennials think it's ancient history. And uh, the millennials tend to ask, why did we not stay on the moon? Why aren't there humans on Mars yet? Uh, after all, Matt Damon made it look easy, at least in CGI. So uh, I like this picture because uh, it's the only scientist that went to the moon, Harrison Schmitt on Apollo 17. It's a geologist at work. Um, so, but nevertheless, it's a long time ago now. And so I want to go on a little personal diversion. Uh, I'm no academic and people have written whole books on this stuff. Uh, a good friend, John Logsdon, who's a historian of space history, has done written a book uh, an inch thick on what happened at the end of the Apollo era. Well, I'm going to do it by a different way, um, which is going back to the eight-year-old me in 1971. Yep, about this big. And in those days, most of the tea bought in the UK came in little boxes, uh, PG Tips tea. loose. And, and inside each one of those boxes of tea, there was a little picture card. And you collected 50 picture cards, and you stuck them into a little, um, uh, a little album. And in 1971, it was the Race into Space. And I forgot to bring it with me. I usually try and remember to bring it with me, but it's real. It's, it, I'm not making this up. 44, the first 44 picture cards told the story from Sputnik to Apollo. But the last six picture cards look forward to the 1970s, exciting era. And what I didn't know, but I now know, those picture cards were actually the plans that were put to the president, Nixon, by the vice president, Spiro Agnew, about what the future of NASA should be. And some of it came to pass. So there was an early space station that became called Skylab, based on Apollo. There was the Space Shuttle, and there was the once-in-a-century Grand Tour, which became Voyager, and which has left the solar system, might be one of the last things left when humanity ceases to exist. Um, But there were other things there, like the space tug going backwards and forwards to the moon, uh, a shuttle down to the surface of the moon, uh, a moon base buried underneath the moon's surface. That didn't happen. And neither did the very last slide, which people at the front might be able to see, which was the manned flight to Mars,
1: which was
2: going to depart... I always have to look this up. Yes, departing November the 12th, 1981, <laughs> and return, uh, for a landing on 9th of August uh, 1982. So... Um, To to me, 8-year-old me, this was something that was going to happen, uh, but it didn't. The reality, and this is, I think, the only graph in this presentation, uh, was a bit different. NASA's budget as a percentage of the overall U.S. federal budget, it it peaked in 1966, at 4.5% of the federal budget. By the time you got to 1971, it's already halved, and it halved again, and it's roughly where it is today. It's about half a percent of the federal budget, um, which is still $20 billion a year, which is still sort of three times uh, ESA's budget. But nevertheless, bad news for the eight-year-old me, dreaming of moon bases and going to Mars. Good news for the 55-year-old me, the point of the story, conceptually all the ideas of exploration for the future were still, are still valid, the building blocks, what we need to do, but it only becomes possible if it becomes a global effort and the U.S. recognises it can't do everything alone, and indeed it has done, it did do, and that's how we got to the space station, the, the, the remarkable ach- achievement of international cooperation, the U.S. led, largely funded day by day by the U.S., but its construction depended on dozens of pieces of hardware built around the world and integrated, bolted together for the first time, 400 kilometers above our head at enormous speed. So it's been continually occupied now for 20 years. So I want to step out and say a few words about the space station and show you a few movies. Um, This is the kind of uh, graphic everybody has to produce now, which says these are the benefits. It's come back from the space station from uh, starting to work on it in Europe 20 years ago now. Um, 15 international partners, 230 individuals, hundreds of scientific experiments, actually about 2,000 European researchers working on it. Um, But it's also helped create economic return. We don't launch pounds, euros, whatever, into space. We, We use it in European industry and it develops capabilities and skills which go forward and it creates jobs. You might not know it, but a very large fraction of the habitable volume of the space station was built in europe and talis alenia particularly in italy did a lot of that work it now has a nice recurring production line of modules that it delivers to the u.s for every cygnus cargo vehicle that goes back up to the space station with cargo Um, and of course there's an inspirational element and i'll say more about inspiration in a minute or maybe i'll let the videos do that Um, but the value of the science is is tangible what comes back to earth Uh, more so than some other areas of activities in space, perhaps, we very consciously link what we're doing to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And you can link the activities, whether it's uh, education, developing water, waste treatment systems, better industrial alloys. The things that go on aboard the space station come back to Earth. But it's nothing more inspiring, I think, than the, the astronauts uh, for the next generation, for this generation. So my three three different movies about by three different astronauts, or about three different astronauts. And inevitably, I'm going to start with uh, the Principia mission of Tim Peake. So it's just a little reminder of what happened back in uh, back in 2016 for his uh, his mission. Gives me a chance. So that's a, a nice video. Maybe your heart swelled with pride a bit. Great. No, that's good. Um, how many of you followed Thomas Pesquet's mission to the space station? A handful of people possibly putting their hands up. Well, it, I can tell you it had even more impact than Tim Peake's mission. He gained 1.6 million Facebook followers. Um, and uh, as soon as he came back, he was on a plane with the French president on the way to Washington. Um, and he continues to have an enormous uh, public uh, image. But the great thing was seeing his mission being reported on German TV uh, because of the scale of the, of the mission. So uh, the, the, the next video, which um, should work, is a different perspective on human spaceflight, his personal perspective. Let's see, what do you make of this?
0: I wonder what I'm going to do, and also, I wonder who I am and who I'm going to be. One may think it's hard to focus on yourself in such a different context, a context out of this world. Well, it's not. It comes quite natural, indeed. Who am I? A spaceman? A French astronaut? know, I'm a man, together with other men and women, on a trip of discovery. And like every trip, it leads to discover yourself more than other places. And for some reason, it takes all of this technology for us to come up here and understand the simplicity of things. The Earth the cosmos, and life itself, as a unity. And from here, it's really difficult to understand borders, wars, and hate. Sometimes, these thoughts are a bit overwhelming. At least until you go to sleep again.
2: Now, my third video is not of uh, an astronaut. It's by an astronaut. And it's a little clip of film that I find amazing. And I'm going to ask the lights to be as dark as dark as possible. Alexander Gerst, on his mission last year, he was commander of the space station. He talked to the climate change conference. He did double the amount of planned science. Fantastic. But he also did something which, to me, almost looks like science fiction. He managed to film a rocket taking off from the surface of the Earth, a Soyuz rocket with a progress cargo vehicle. It's a time-lapse image, and I asked you what you're going to see is the Earth turning, the dark, thin top layer of the atmosphere at night, cities going by in in, uh, in the Far East and then Kazakhstan, and then a point of light, which is a Soyuz rocket taking off. if, uh, If the light is dark enough, you can see the smoke trail. You will see it go up, and you will see what they call the, the Korolev cross—the four boosters uh, illuminating the night sky, and then separating. And you can see light go back down again. And right at the end of the video, you can see the second stage igniting. So, uh, and that will happen at sort of the top right-hand corner of the screen. So, lights dark, really dark, <laughs> and let's see if we can make this work. I, think I just find that amazing. It's the infinity of space. It's our puny rockets. That's how we get up there day in, day out um, to the space station. And it's a remarkable piece of photography, the time lapse, to get it just right, to get the pan. I love it. Okay. Let's get a bit systematic about this exploration business. Why are we doing it? Four reasons. New knowledge, science, understanding of our, our, our universe. I always say exploration without science is just tourism, but exploration is a lot more than only science. It's innovation. It's challenge-driven innovation. I always use the example that you and I use 100 litres of water a day. The astronauts on the station are less than 5 litres of water with all the recycling systems. If we're going to go further into deep space, we have to get the recycling even better. That technology comes back down here on Earth. Uh, applications in emergency relief in, in that following natural disasters. I use another example. Um, Literally, this morning we had a fantastic meeting with a French industrial company, Air Liquide. They have 90,000 people around the world doing, basically, gases are their technology, their skill. They built, um, contributed towards the minus 80 degree freezer that is aboard the the space station for doing science. The the cooling technology in that, uh, a turbo Brayton cooler, they've taken that and they now use it on ships all around the world to prevent boil-off of liquid natural gas into the atmosphere. And they got a huge business out of that. Um, and that's why they've come back to us and saying we'd really like to get involved in this lunar exploration business that I'm going to talk about in a minute. And, of course, everything we do in exploration is with international partners, one way or another. The fact that the, uh, the ISS partnership has survived through all the difficulties of recent years, I think, is a hope for the future. It endures. It goes on. Um, and maybe it deserves a a Nobel Peace Prize one day. And I think a a brighter future depends on inspiring the next generation uh, with all the benefits of working together on a global scale on big, difficult, challenging projects. Maybe that's why some of you are here today. The European Astronaut Corps, these people kind of represent the best of what we can do in Europe and what we can do on a global scale. Now, where are we exploring? Three destinations, low-Earth orbit, Moon and Mars. Places where humans will one day live and work, or in the case of low-Earth orbit, we have been living and working now for the best part of 20 years. But, of course, they're completely different from each other. The the picture is a cheat. They're nowhere near the same size. Um, But uh, if I talk about those three destinations, let's think about answering that question, why aren't we on Mars yet? So I put my hands together, and that's planet Earth, okay? Okay. The, the space station is at about 400 kilometers, which is roughly the length of the hairs on the back of my hand. So it's not far away. It takes a, an hour or two to get there and less than an hour to come back again. Um, the moon is 1,000 times further out. So roughly that's about the fourth row here, fourth, fifth row of, of here. How far away is Mars on that scale? <laughs> Well, of course, it depends where it is in its orbit relative to the Earth. At its closest distance, it's about about a kilometre on that scale. So uh, where's that? Buckingham Palace, would you say? Something like that. Um, When we're on opposite sides of the orbit, opposite sides of the sun, it's about five kilometres. So that's probably Houses of Parliament. Yeah, I'll let you decide which is the more alien place, Mars or the Houses of Parliament, just at the moment. Um, uh, But that starts to answer the question of why it's really difficult to get to Mars and why we're not there yet. So on why the moon makes a lot of sense as a place to learn, uh, to develop the capabilities to journey to Mars and beyond. The moon is only three days travelling away compared to at least six months and a round trip of a year or two to Mars. The communications delay is a few seconds instead of tens of minutes. And it's the development of the transportation. That's fine. People can build a rocket. But no use if you arrive at Mars with astronauts that are irradiated or starved or run out of oxygen. So all of the other technologies you need to get to Mars are part of the challenge. And we can do a lot of that at the moon. So those are some of the challenges we need to to take up. And that's why the exploration program we have today, which I would like for the future to expand it, to, to talk about going further, to co- talk about tackling some of these challenges that we need to get us further into deep space. Yeah, all the classical technologies of power and propulsion, electrical propulsion, uh, so on. AI is becoming relevant Um, Alex Gerst on his mission used a little AI assistant for the first time uh, to to support his his mission work. But we're looking at some really far out things using space resources, in-situ resource utilisation. How can we synthesise the consumables like drinkable water, oxygen, even rocket fuel? And then scientists are really studying now the things that you gain used to be science fiction like human stasis or torpor. So how can you reduce the uh, the amount of consumables by slowing down the human body for long-term missions? So really interesting challenges. And that's why we're trying to build that into our long-term plan. This is a kind of programmatic, this is a sort of uh, thing we like to show uh, our our member states. We have a clear plan. We're in low-Earth orbit and we want to stay there. We would like to get involved in Europeans going beyond low-Earth orbit for the first time. That will be supported by a lunar robotic program and we're already at Mars and we want to do more in in our robotic program to Mars because doing work robotically at Mars and doing the human work uh, nearer to Earth at the moon will prepare us for the big step of putting boots on on Mars. So I want to talk about each one of these cornerstones a little bit more. Our technology activities on the left-hand side enable this. What we get back in the scientific activities is through a program called SciSpace that's part of the overall exploration program. So, forward to the moon. Well, we're already on our way. Um, I said blithely, we delivered the first European service module on November the 5th last year. I thought that's quite nice. It's a big piece of explosive hardware. Um, 13 tons when fully fueled, the first fully human rated space vehicle built in Europe. Uh, we're already building the second of those. The first one will be launched on, uh, this is the the, the business end of it, a 27 kilonewton main engine coming from the space shuttle, a lot of other engines. I'm a propulsion engineer long, long, long ago, and they showed me the layout of this thing. I'd never seen anything like it, A 1,000 components just in the propulsion system. Um, It will send uh, the first Orion uncrewed spacecraft on a mission not just to the moon, but into a so-called distant retrograde orbit further out than the moon, on a sort of shakedown cruise, uncrewed, uh, at the end of 2020, maybe early 2021, launched on the first SLS uh, spacecraft. It will. Uh, where will it eventually go to? This thing called the Lunar Gateway that I want to say uh, a little bit about. Because um, it gets a bit of a bad press in some places, so I want to talk a little bit about it. The Orion astronauts will start to build the Gateway. It's kind of our foothold in deep space for going back to the surface of the moon and on further into deep space. Again, a thousand times further out in space than the space station. Crewed for weeks or months at a time, uncrewed, and therefore a great place to do science when it's not crewed. Uh, things like looking at the Earth, the interaction between the Earth uh, and and the the Sun-Earth connection, collecting cosmic dust and bringing it back to the Earth, all sorts of cool things that scientists are coming up with. Um, But it's also a foothold to control robots back on the surface of the Moon, and eventually the human returns to the Moon. So it's an interesting location. We call this the proving ground for exploration. Um, And compared to the the low lunar orbit rendezvous that was used for Apollo, it's got a lot of interesting advantages. The most fundamental thing, think of this as being a reusable command module for lunar surface operations. In Apollo, everything was thrown away every time. It's not a sustainable way of doing exploration. So permanently deployed near the moon, it can be a staging point, a foothold. It's a really interesting orbit. Again, when I was studying uh, in university a million years ago, they hadn't really invented the orbit that this this will use. There's a whole set of fascinating three-body orbits, a novel non-rectilinear halo orbit, which is a subset of a generic Lagrangian point halo orbit, uh, peculiar non-analytical three-body orbits, uh, which offer offer some really interesting characteristics for a lunar spaceport, because this is what this is. Uh, it's very stable over long periods of time. It requires very little propellant to keep you there. Low lunar orbits are very unstable; they decay very quickly. Um, it's also the orbit allows continuous communications to the Earth, even when the Gateway is looking at the far side of the Moon. Uh, it's in a very it's a very elliptical orbit, so it gets down close to the Moon, but also the orbit is something that goes so high, 75,000 kilometres above the Moon. <laughs> the period is of the order of a week. So, and it can be easily reached by Orion, but it can also be reached by cargo coming on commercial launch vehicles as well. So, it's kind of uh, uh, it gives access to areas like the South pole in basin, which is scientifically interesting for 80, 90% of the time. We would like Europe to get involved in this beast. So, here's a kind of animation of it. And starting on the left-hand side, let me take you through some of the pieces of it. The first element would be the power propulsion element, the largest electric propulsion system, allowing us to not just be in one orbit around the moon, but to go on shakedown cruises. You get there at the other end with an Orion spacecraft, think of that as the shuttlecraft going to Starship Enterprise. In between, there are various other elements where Europe would like to contribute, Um, The first of those is a a lovely piece of technology called uh, Esprit, which would do several new things, one of which is to provide refueling for a deep-space spacecraft, so refueling of both xenon and hydrazine propulsion, Um, provide all of the communications back to Earth, but also down to the surface of the Moon, a science airlock uh, that would allow us to put scientific payloads and even deploy CubeSats into lunar orbit, uh, and altogether, a package that would, uh, NASA is really keen to have as part of the overall concept. The second element we're looking at is to contribute to or even lead the international habitation module. Ja- the Japanese agency, Canada, would also contrib- contribute with a robotic arm. Uh, provide docking ports for lunar ascenders, whether they be initially robotic and later on human. Um, and, but also the, all of what you need to support the crew whilst they're, they're aboard. Uh, and that is I talked about lunar ascenders and that takes me on to the third element which is the robotic activities, we're already building lunar uh, technology to go to um, uh, the surface of the moon, I'll say a bit more about that in a moment, but we have our ideas for how we step from classical robotic missions back towards the human lunar architecture that we need through robotic missions that come back to the gateway, so What do we want to do at the moon? Science, first of all. Uh, I always say the moon is a museum of 4.5 billion years of solar system history. And so far, we've basically gone to the museum, gift shop, grabbed a few things, and come home again. The interesting stuff, well, we didn't even know it was interesting when we went there in the 1960s and 70s. We didn't know that there appears to be large quantities of water embedded in the South Polar regions. Uh, We hadn't thought about its ability to absorb the history of the solar system. Uh, We hadn't thought about its uh, potential to do uh, low-frequency radio astronomy. So you saw the Chinese land there just around Christmas time uh, on the far side of the moon. It had a very small European experiment to start to investigate the feasibility of doing astronomy on the surface of the moon. And then beyond the pure science, there's can we use the resources on the moon to actually support exploration? 80% of the cost of exploration, even 70% of going to the space station, is the transportation, every kilo. If you can take less stuff, if you can use the stuff that's there, if you can live off the land, it makes exploration more sustainable. We don't just want to go back to the moon, recreate the moon for three or four days at a time. The longest that they were on the surface of the moon with Apollo was three days. We want to go there for weeks and months at a time to do real exploration. And so... Uh, these uh, realisation of permanently shadowed craters at the moon's south pole that get to incredibly cold temperatures and could act as cold traps for water was not fully understood. Now orbital missions have identified the presence of water and uh, even in some of the Apollo samples when they've been re-examined people realise very small quantities of water was in some of those samples. And one of the things some of the scientists want to do is actually investigate the early Earth yeah, they want to investigate the early Earth. So because on, on our planet, plate tectonics have turned over everything, so you can't go very far back in history. Uh, perhaps the place to go is to go to the Moon, to discover the early geological history of the, of the Moon. And this was, sounded like science fiction until a paper was published the other week of a lunar sample from Apollo 14 that indeed appears to be more like the Earth than the rest of the Moon. It's tantalizing, it's it's not fully uh, accepted by everybody yet, but it tells you that there's a a lot of interesting potential to study our planet by going to the moon. So the first thing we want to do is to investigate whether this water is really there. Is it accessible? So we're working with our Russian partners, Roscosmos, to go to the surface of the moon and drill below the surface uh, and take samples and analyze them. Technically, Uh, A drill derived from the ExoMars and uh, a Rosetta drill and a mass spectrometer that has its heritage, also from Rosetta, uh, being led by the Open University here in the UK. Uh, If we make progress, we think about more uh, advanced robotic missions which take advantage of the, uh, the gateway as our spaceport. So going to the surface of the moon with rovers, robots, maybe controlled from the gateway, going into the deep, dark places that are pretty dangerous for our astronauts to go, uh, realistically go to in the near term, bring back samples from these new locations back to the gateway, bring them home on the next Orion, travelling back to Earth. So the concept is to land on the moon, deploy a rover that can operate for weeks, months at a time, bring back samples, and the sent vehicle comes back to the gateway and rendezvous. Uh, with, with the gateway using the, the, the robotic arm. Um, and all of this is a step towards a human return to the moon and not just a rerun of Apollo, something where we want to balance the science and the Mars going forward objectives, sustainable with increasing the amount of reusability and also eventually having an exit strategy. We, what we th- think is, a, is attractive is to do regional exploration with rovers, human, ro- uh, human rovers, camper vans, if you like, uh, and only eventually to think about a permanent lunar base in one location, the equivalent Antarctic lunar bases we have on Earth. Um, And uh, uh, this has been studied. It's been studied building on the architecture we already have, uh, adding things like a lunar lander, cargo landers, logistics modules, and a pressurized rover. So stepwise building on the building blocks have been put in place. And Ariane 64 is shown as an example of a commercial rocket that could support it, but other commercial rockets on the U.S. side would also be able to support the Gateway and onwards down to the surface of the moon. Um, And uh, we at ESA have already studied how we could uh, contribute to this by thinking about building the the human ascent vehicle for for the lander. The technical details are not so much important as the fact this is all becoming increasingly serious. Why so? Because about now, over in the US, NASA is briefing their industry on their request to start to design the human lunar lander. So it's becoming real. And this is one architecture, impossible to read at the back of the room, of how you'd use the gateway as the staging point and potentially start to build reusable elements the Gateway itself, reusable ascenders, uh, reusable rovers, and, of course, eventually the Orion vehicle itself it becomes reusable. And we even thought about where we want to go. We want to go to somewhere in the South Pole-Aitken uh, Basin, this amazing massive impact basin on the far side of the Moon that is th- extracted, is drilled down into the surface of the Moon and can give us access to the, the subsurface. Uh, what is envisaged is to uh, a kind of lunar grand tour, Days, sorry, weeks, months at a time, driving off a pair of rovers, each with two crew. We probably need uh, nuclear power sources to support them, particularly when they get into the lunar night. Uh, And so that's quite interesting. The the Chinese landers, for example, has just survived a couple of uh, lunar nights now. And to do that with humans is really challenging our engineering in terms of energy and life support systems. We don't know how to do that today this will be completely new for the new era of exploration. And the fun thing in thinking about this is, what do you do during the overnight stops when there is no light and you're losing solar power and you're living off your your batteries or nuclear power systems? And one of the things you do is start to do the education and science back to to Earth. So the next generation are going to expect to be involved in this exploration. I, I keep talking about telepresence or video presence. Maybe it's holographic presence. I don't know. And only when you've done all of that can you start to think about a sustainable moon base, the moon base of my picture card number 48 in 1971. Uh, But we don't want to stop there. On to the red planet. We keep the goal, the long-term goal, in mind. We're already there. Uh, ESA's Mars Express science mission has been there since Christmas Day 2003, looking at everything from the the destruction of the upper atmosphere of Mars... The atmosphere itself, its surface, but also its subsurface, the presence of water. Um, but now we have uh, a major program ongoing, ExoMars. You've heard about the ExoMars mission. It's not only the rover mission that's in front of us, it's also the, the element that's already there, the trace gas orbiter. So let me give you a kind of update of what's going on with this uh, Mars exploration program. So two missions, first launch in 2016, the next in 2020, the 2016 mission delivered the thing called the Trace Gas Orbiter into a Martian orbit. Did an amazing—our colleagues at the operations centre at ESOC did this amazing job of air, hundreds of error-breaking manoeuvres to get it down into the operational orbit. It also provides data relay for landers and rovers. And uh, whilst the 2020 mission is a carrier spacecraft to get us to to Mars, a descent module to enter, a board is a landing platform which has its own science, and then a rover to drive off. So it's a massive international cooperation, not just with Russians, with Roscosmos, but also with NASA. And I'll be more specific about that. So let's talk about 2016. It's on the trail of a mystery. Is there methane or is there oxygen? Or is there water in the atmosphere of the red planet? There's very, very tenuous evidence of methane being in the upper in the atmosphere of Mars. Methane means two things: is either Life, very, very unlikely. I don't believe there's life on Mars today, sorry. Um, Or there's active geology, which would be interesting. Um, There are some very interesting results about to to come out on this question, which I'm not allowed to talk about at the moment, but they will be probably controversial because uh, NASA has claimed to have detected methane from one of its rovers. We shall see. It's the biggest thing in orbit around Mars by a long way. It's the biggest, most powerful spacecraft at Mars right now. And it's not only uh, doing science itself, it's also acting as a data relay. And again, it amazes me, I was just sat downstairs and about an hour ago, I got an update, came through from, from back at base, uh, with some statistics. It's now more than half of all of the data that's coming back from the NASA lander, InSight, and Rover, is coming back through XMR's our orbiter. This is the international cooperation. Remember I was talking about it? It's happening, happening day in, day out. Just before Christmas with the NASA administrator, came to the operations centre, and he saw data coming from his rover through the European orbiter. So it's a great collaboration that's really happening at the moment. Um, It has a wonderful stereo camera, and I love this image. This was the very first image that came back from this stereo camera. Mars is a place as well. This is one crater. It's 7 o'clock in the morning on the 15th of April last year, 74 degrees north, a famous crater showing encrusted with carbon dioxide ice, um, tells you what we're capable of doing now with our, with our orbiter missions. And its purpose, yes, to take amazing images, but also to, with its other instruments to probe the atmosphere and understand this th- the thin, tenuous atmosphere, the red planet. But we're also aiming to go to the surface with uh, the rover mission. And what are we trying to do? <clears throat> we're trying to go four billion years back in time. It's a time machine to explore the bottom of an ocean which no longer exists, to drill below, to penetrate the, air, the region that will be damaged by uh, uh, the radiation environment of the red planet, seeking the possibility of finding organic material that might be traces or at least tell us something about the possibility of life on the red planet, uh, but also study the surface geology and the environment and also... Obtain knowledge that will support robotic sample return mission, I'll say something about, and also eventually human missions. In fact, the Trace Gas Orbiter itself has a radiation monitoring system, and it measured during its mission to to Mars the full radiation dose that would have been experienced by humans going to Mars, allowing us to compare that data with uh, the susceptibility of the human being and what sort of protection we would need for a human being going to Mars. Humans and robotics working together. I don't know if you can see this picture at the back of, this, of the room, but it's, a, it's the history of the first billion years of planet Earth on the bottom and planet Mars on the top. The amazing thing is life got going on our planet within the first billion years. With The oldest preserved traces of life are 3.5 billion years on, on our planet, long before there was lots of lovely oxygen being produced by plants. So... What sort of life that was, how it got going, we don't fully understand. But we certainly think the presence of water was an important thing. And there was a lot of water on Mars in the first billion years of its history. It's now either gone or is buried or frozen. So that's why we're interested in going to places not just randomly chosen on the the red planet, but somewhere where we've identified from our orbiters seems to be really ancient landscapes. And that's the challenge of ExoMars, is to go to really ancient landscape. Here's the engineering. Great chunks of uh, very challenging uh, spacecraft engineering to get there, but we're on our, on our way. Day by day, the team are working. I said, we get to Mars. Here's the first part of the spacecraft, the carrier module, which is just about finished. and will be delivered from the uh, OHB company in Germany uh, next month. So that will carry us to Mars. Our friends on the Russian side are building the lander and the descent module, then the middle of doing the drop test campaign for the landing system and the detection of the landing system. It has a propulsion system as well. Um, The heat shield for the the entry into the the planet is, is finished and being integrated. They're also manufacturing the flight model of the the back part of the spacecraft, behind uh, that protects the uh, the rover and the landed platform. This is the landed platform being integrated a few months ago. It's a fuzzy picture. I'm sorry, I took it uh, with my iPhone, um, but it uh, shows you the state. The four red, well, the three red things and the fourth one behind the, the guy's head there um, are the four braking engines that will break the very last moment of the uh, the, of the landing on the on the planet. We're st- Shaking and baking, different elements of the spacecraft. This is a structure model of uh, the carrier spacecraft and the descent module, also in Lvochkin last last year. What is a board? We'll talk a bit about the rover, particularly. A set of instruments, again, not readable at the back there, but it goes from cameras that can look out 100 metres in front of the rover through a a ground-penetrating radar that can see three or or four metres below the surface... Um, all the way down to molecular-level analysis. A very complex instrument. There's been a joint European-U.S. challenge to build this uh, laser desorption extraction and mass spectrometer. But it, it exists. It's been delivered. Uh, and it's right in the middle of what is now christened the Rosalind Franklin rover. I hope you know who Rosalind Franklin was. Um, uh, and this cutaway drawing will, will illustrate the, the innards of the rover a little bit. So it's a 6 wheel rover... Um, with the possibility not only to um, drive in the normal way, but also to wheel walk, so it can it can shuffle its way out of uh, sand traps. On the top of the uh, the mast are the, is the stereo uh, camera, and inside, at the front, uh, is the kind of canister that contains the drill that will get two metres below the surface. It, it's launched horizontally, it tips up vertically, but there's a, a beautiful... Um, Victorian machine room system of set of drills that assembles itself that has been finished and has been delivered and uh, right in the middle of the spacecraft is the ultra clean zone the, it's called the ultra clean zone where the, the scientific instruments are and then you've got power systems uh, computers all the rest of the things you would need uh, to make the rover work, it it always has to, to me a slightly um, steampunk look about it as well. The sort of the the, the things on the side are not wiring; they're, they're um, loop heat pipes that help control the uh, the environment aboard the rover. Uh, so the Moma Life Search instrument has been built and delivered and integrated in the qualification module model of the the whole ultra clean zone is is underway now, and I like this picture because it looks almost like a surgery. It looks like a, something out of casualty it's again we 're trying to look for presence of life, so the the, the, the surgeons assembling it are, are double bagged uh, they have a two layer protection i 'll show you the protection in, in, in a minute uh, so there it is um, we 're working on the chassis our colleagues uh, uh, the Swiss company Rouag has built uh, testing the the locomotion system at the moment. The flight model of the, of the, the wheels and the chassis has come from MDA in Canada. Uh, all of this stuff is on its way to Sunny Stevenage, where they've already shaped and baked the structure thermal model of the rover. This is what it looks like when it's all folded up. It's like a folded-up cat. Once it lands, it sort of stretches itself out, and the wheels come out. Um, so that's been that's nice. The final thing will be... Integ- I took this picture last week. The ultra-clean special clean room that's been built at Stevenage by Airbus to integrate the thing. Underneath the kind of uh, Baco foil, under the, under the foil there, is the service module of the rover awaiting the, the whole scientific payload to arrive shortly. They will be working three shifts a week, uh, three shifts a day for the rest of most of the rest of this year. So they're going to be working very, very hard to deliver that. Oh yeah, there's a picture of a p- photograph I've took outside that facility. This is what you have to wear to go in there. It takes about half an hour just to get inside the clean room um, because of the two layers, the double bagging of the of the human operative. Uh, Liz Seward is the person, is the model, <laughs> and. Uh, this is a slight diversion, but I keep wanting to come back to this connection between humans and robots um, is coming towards the end now. But uh, one of the things we want to do at the gateway is control robots from, the, from the, uh, the gateway on the surface. Maybe we want to do that on Mars as well. This was an amazing experiment we did at the, the Mars, uh, Mars yard at Stevenage. Who's driving the rover? It's Tim Peake aboard the space station. Uh, It's part of a long series of experiments we've been doing, uh, which are increasingly with what's the choice between teleoperations and autonomous operation on Mars. Autonomous operation makes a lot of sense on the surface of the moon. Teleoperations will make a lot of sense. It was a really weird experience. The rover was just sat there stationary, and suddenly it sort of came alive. The cameras at the top there sort of came up and started to look around, knowing that it was Tim up there whizzing around on the space station controlling it. Um, We've done some field trials of the ExoMars rover last year in Spain. It rained. Uh, It doesn't rain on Mars very often. The end of this month, they're all off to the Atacama Desert in Chile to do more trials. In this case, the rover will be controlled from Harwell, from the uh, the ESA facility there. So we're on our way, um, but we don't want to stop there. We're already thinking about what comes next, and what comes next would be to make the first round-trip mission to the red planet, what we call Mars Sample Return. Um, I talked about the lunar sample. um, New discovery about the Apollo 14 sample. It may have come from the Earth. Fifty years later, we're still doing new science on those lunar samples. There's a lot of that work going on uh, in the UK, in Europe, uh, in the UK, even in London, uh, where people are re-examining those samples with the the instruments we have now that didn't exist 20, 30, 40 years ago, if we can bring scientific treasure back from Mars, again, we'll be studying that for another 50 years. It's an easy thing to say. It's a difficult thing to do. (laughs) It's a four-element mission. The first element is already being built. It's NASA's Mars 2020 rover that will land on Mars, select samples, and put them into little kind of test tube containers and leave them behind on the surface of the red planet. The second step is to land somewhere nearby, near enough by, so it implies a precision lander, and then send a little rover to whiz out and collect those samples and bring them back again. Put those samples into a container about this, the orbital OS, the orbital sample container, bolt that onto the top of a rocket, launch the rocket off the surface of the red planet into orbit, and then throw it overboard. Where a second spacecraft has also arrived... Uh, uh, which will break the contaminate... Why are we throwing it overboard? Because we want to break the continuous cycle, the continuous link between the red planet and the Earth. The sample container will be loaded into a re-entry vehicle and shipped back to the Earth on the first spacecraft to go to Mars and come back again. And then we take that sample, when it's come back on its re-entry vehicle, hit the surface of probably a desert somewhere in the US, take it to a facility where we crack it open... Uh, for the first time, assuming, it, worst case, as if it had bubonic plague. So it has to be in a biocontainment facility. And again, there'll be a lot of people double-suited up and remote uh, uh, operations. And then eventually, once we've assessed the ha- hazards, we can sterilize the sa- samples and send them to research facilities around the world. All that I've been talking about for the past too many minutes um, is part of what we would like to do. I've told you uh, NASA is on its way. It's spending $50 million a week on its new exploration programme. Um, we in Europe are spending $500 million a year, so we're not quite at the same level. But if we want to get on board any of these new buses that are leaving, we have to get on with it. And we have one of these things called an ESA Ministerial Council this year. It's called Space 19+, Plus because it's where all the ministers from the member states come together. It'll happen in Seville in November... Why is it called Space 19 Plus? It's about space. (laughs) It's happening in 2019, but it's about the future, the next decade, the decade that uh, we need to make happen. The question is, what is the role for Europe? And even more so, in this audience, it's what's going to be the role for the UK? Right now, my shareholders, the people who pay me, fund my program, is 31% Germany, 27% Italy, 21% France. 9.5% 9.5% UK. Must try harder. <laughs> uh, but if the UK has got fantastic science and technological capability in all of the things I've been talking about and could make a much bigger contribution to the future, and if we make this all happen, these are the headlines we can make for the next decade, the first European en route to the moon, the first lunar internet service operational, maybe the first proof that Explorers can live off the land by using off-world resources, and the first round-trip mission to the surface of Mars. Um, I've been talking now for the best part of an hour. If you're bored of that, uh, I've got a little video that tries to encapsulate this vision in 90 seconds and show you all of our astronauts working aboard the space station, I work to build lunar landers, I work to build the Orion spacecraft, and the vision of going on to Mars. Thank you, it's been a pleasure and honor to speak to you tonight.